1: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. We learned this week in a surprise announcement that Mike Layton would not be seeking re-election in this October's municipal vote. He has so far said he has no concrete plans other than to say he wants to fight climate change outside of public office. Mike Layton, whose father was the legendary Canadian Jack Layton, also says he wants a job that allows him to spend evenings and weekends at home. Mike Layton was a guest panelist this past Thursday on Fightback's Tune Into the Town panel. While filling in for Libby's Nimer, Marissa Lennox was also joined by former Toronto Mayor David Crombie and Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village. Marissa started the conversation by asking Mike Layton,
2: how difficult was this decision? Counselor, I imagine this was a difficult decision for you to make.
3: Well, it certainly was, and the last couple of months, i've put a lot of thought to this uh in in reflecting back on what i've accomplished over the past twelve years, also looking forward as to what I want to accomplish, and one of the things that weighs pretty heavy on my mind, is uh, spending time with my little kids. I got two little girls at home, and um, the, the the life of a municipal popula- a municipal councillor with a very quickly developing ward uh, means that most evenings I'm away at meetings. And during COVID, it it was a little bit manageable because I was at home on the screen. But when we get back to in-person meetings, it means Typically about four nights a week, and then a couple events on weekends that I'm expected to be at. And and frankly, I've missed far too many bedtimes. And so that's one of the major thing, one of the, my major major motivations. And the other is uh, I I'm, I really want to be having more of an impact directly on climate solutions. And I'm finding I've I've worked very hard to get the city in a good place around our Transform To Climate Action plan. I've I've been a leader on that, but it's passed and it's in the hands of others to implement. Well, I want to get my hands dirty and make sure that we're doing the necess- taking the necessary steps as a city, as a province, as a country uh, to fight climate change again for my little girls and that generation. Uh, and so for that reason, I thought, uh, you know what, I can be proud of what I've accomplished here, but it's time to move on and, and, and look to have influence in a, different, in a different arena.
2: When you reflect back on your legacy, what is the thing you're most proud of?
3: Well, I think there's a couple things that come to mind. One is I fought in 2011 to reestablish the Indigenous Affairs Committee, and I've served on it ever since. And in that time, we've changed our city procedures and protocols around land acknowledgements. There's Indigenous flags in the square. There's, uh, there's soon to be a, a spirit garden at, at Nathan Phillips Square that's part of one of the calls to action of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But we also got, took a lot of tangible steps in getting new funding for an Indigenous Affairs office first. Of its can in the country, uh, we we recently passed a reconciliation act action plan that's going to ensure that we're fulfilling all of our commitments to the Indigenous people of Toronto. And then second is around climate. You know, it's probably been the thing that I've worked on the most. Um, there's been a lot of work around safer streets, uh, but also around uh, getting ensuring that Toronto is well positioned to meet its climate targets and actually resourcing a plan to achieve that. And I, I think I, I wrote the the mayor's um, uh, climate emergency declaration and seconded it, uh, which set us on a course to net zero by 2040, which is really the now global standard uh, for cities. And we're we're on track uh, if we continue those investments to, to meet that target. So again, time for me to get uh, get my hands dirty and help us meet those targets.
2: David, seven city councillors will, will not be seeking re-election. Is it normal to see that kind of exodus?
4: Well, I don't know what normal might be. In my own judgment, city council benefits by, by a constant changeover that we need you, you, you need new. It's a very hard job. Mm. It's a grinding job. And you need it. You need to have a new spirit with you, and that very often comes with with new membership and new members on the council. So the fact that seven are going and many of them make good contributions—I don't say they don't—but that does allow the door to be open for new, fresh thoughts on a new on, 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 a, on a new time for Toronto.
2: Karen, seven seems like a lot of councillors to lead to not seek re-election. Do you think maybe the pandemic is playing a role here, or it just is? such that that is the timing.
5: I guess when I looked at it, I was coming up to 11 years um, when I decided that I needed to do something more. Um, My decision was to run for mayor, and of course that didn't work out, so I was invited to leave politics. But it it was really um, a function of feeling that I had done what I could do at city council, wanting to do, being at a point in my career where I felt I had more to offer, and and also my family, because my kids were young at the time as well. So there's a number of factors that come into play. But I, I think even more than the pandemic, I think that the merging of the wards is quite significant. Uh, certainly in the colleagues that I've spoken to are still, that have left council are still, and are still on council, that it, it, it has been um, an, adjustment, an adjustment during COVID and now coming out of COVID, managing the expectations of a counselor for that, that increased ward is, is really quite significant.
1: Marissa Lennox, in conversation with Fight Back's Tune Into the Town panel. Former Toronto Mayor David Crombie, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and outgoing Toronto City Councillor Mike Layton. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. We learned recently the governing Liberals in Ottawa are planning to reduce fertilizer use for Canada's farmers. They're looking to impose a requirement to reduce nitrous oxide emissions, which is a component of fertilizer, by 30 percent, pointing out it's a greenhouse gas and contributing to climate change. Reducing fertilizer use will have a direct impact on production. It risks decreasing output by farmers and in turn could drive up the price of food even more and result in lost revenue for farmers. Marissa was joined by a panel of experts to discuss the issue. Chris Grossman is an engineer who specializes in emissions measurement and management Peggy Brackfeld is president of the Ontario Federation of Agriculture, and Ryan Koslag is executive director of Ontario Bean Growers.
6: Really what we always look at is having incentives for farmers to participate in new programs. You know, we already know that the foreign... Our nutrient stewardship uh, program is providing some really great results on how to further improve the efficiencies, even though we already believe that our farmers are doing an excellent job as it is already. This is one of the highest costs of their inputs, and so they're already very precise on how they're applying it. But there are incentives for uh, getting more farmers to participate in this type of a farming practice that we believe that the government should focus more attention on, as opposed to putting down a mandate.
2: Okay, Peggy, and what's your position on this? So, certainly in agreement with ryan that there's
5: always a desire to see more incentives and it's been a really tough year um between the uh, fertilizer tariffs that have really increased costs for farmers and uh simply a lot of other things such as inflation that affects even us at the field and in our on our farms so uh certainly agree that the desire to uh continue to improve the environment. I think farmers and government are in agreement on that. It's just how we get there and how we measure it. Uh, I, I do believe that there's a, a fact that if we decrease fertilizer, we will see a decrease in production. And in the current geopolitical situation, is that really uh, the right answer with uh we see challenges in the Ukraine. We see poor pressures on farmers in Europe, including Holland. Mm-hmm. Um How do we move forward? And I think to myself, Canada has this great opportunity to continue to uh, produce food and reduce emissions per production, which we've been doing for years. Um, on my own dairy farm, we saw at one time I milked 17 litres of cow. Now I do over 30 litres of cow per day and that is because we, we know we have better science and better knowledge but it's the same amount of emissions per cow.
2: Um, I think there's some ways to do some measuring that will make a difference. I'd like to bring in Chris Grossman. He's an engineer specializing in emissions management and measurement. He is also the chief technology officer at Quantum Fleet. Chris you know a thing or two about this situation so from your perspective how do you assess what's going on here?
7: The concept of trying to reduce the use of fertilization in farming, uh, both domestically in Canada and globally, is, is something that we've been focused on for several years. The The driver of that focus has largely been centered around the fact that farmers have gone through a tremendous amount of pressure as the cost of fertilizer has gone from $1,200 per ton up to $3,600 per ton over the last 12 months. Wow. Certainly, the introduction of legislation that reduces the use of fertilization puts an increased pressure on the necessity to be as efficient as possible with the use of fertilizer. And, you know, it's certainly a concern not just to Canadian farmers, global farmers, but really should be a concern to the global population, because it's always difficult when policies that aim to addressing the global climate challenge come into conflict with the global food crisis. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Canadian farmers produce you know, the fifth largest export globally of agricultural products. And Canadian farmers feed not just Canadians, but export products over 200 different countries. And so what our company focuses on is helping comply with the philosophy of reducing emissions without sacrificing the yield as a result of the use of the fertilizer itself. The, the improper reduction of fertilizer, where you know uh, soil quality can be detrimentally affected, can actually have a negative impact on the environment. And so ironically, the policies that introduce the use of less fertilizer, which is targeted to have an improvement on the environment, could actually negatively affect the environment. And so this needs to be done in a, in a way where data and um, intelligence is used as a, as a primary driver for how fertilizer um, is
0: used.
1: Chris Grossman is an engineer who specializes in emissions measurement and management. Peggy Breckveld is president of the Ontario Federation of Agriculture. And Ryan Kosleg is executive director of Ontario Bean Growers. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's best of fight back. Coming up after the break, Doug Ford lowers the price of his Etobicoke home from $3.2 million to 2.8 million, which begs the question: What is happening with Toronto's real estate market? We will discuss next.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio, heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown
1: on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It was a hot topic of discussion this past week when we learned Premier Doug Ford's Etobicoke home had been relisted for $400,000 less than the original asking price of $3.2 million. The move by the premier and his wife Carla to lower the price of their home comes as some experts are suggesting we are in for an historic correction in the real estate market that could see sales drop by 42%. Marissa Lennox was joined by Steve Jelinek, Toronto real estate agent with Chestnut Park Real Estate, to talk about what's happening.
6: We've definitely seen the market change over the last few months, uh, but we also saw it change the reverse way from January, or I should say December 2021 until that February and March uh, euphoria period that we saw in 2022. So the market comes and goes, and it goes in cycles. Uh, It's a very cyclical um, market in general in terms of uh, spring market is always very busy. Summer is quiet. People are off on vacations. Then you get to uh, the fall, and things pick up once again. This is a little bit different um, considering that we had You know, some of the lowest interest rates historically ever. um, And now they are increasing rapidly. So that's that obviously puts a lot of pressure on buyers. But uh, in terms of the house specifically, I think that uh, it's a fantastic property. um, And there are buyers still out there for, you know, kind of that renovated, uh, nice family turnkey house. So I I think every house finds its value within the market, but timing uh, changes that value. Um, from one season to the next, never mind one interest rate uh, policy from the Bank of Canada to what we're seeing now, which is uh, very quick increases.
2: Steve, are you among those who say we needed this correction? It's a good thing.
6: What we need is stability in the housing market. I, I mean, if you're a buyer in today's market, it's not as though things got cheaper. You know, with it, fixed interest rates have almost tripled in the last year. So even if values come down significantly, you're still almost paying more for your month-to-month costs as a, uh, as a primary resident in your property. So there's not really a win in this situation unless you're buying your property in cash. And who has the money to do that? So it's not as though things are getting much better. It's almost as though it's just um, a different sort of pressure on the market, if that makes sense.
2: What happens by the end of the year? How does this play out for homeowners?
6: I think I think we're all at the whim of the Bank of Canada. I think if, uh, in, if inflation keeps going up, uh, Bank of Canada has to keep raising interest rates. Interest rates impact uh, house values. Inflation also impacts house values with the cost of materials to renovate your property. Um, so we're in a bit of a, a tough situation right now. I, I, I think the whole economy because we're trying to stamp on inflation by raising interest rates and unfortunately the the um, the inflation readings keep coming in higher. So that's why the Bank of Canada took that action of the full 1% rate hike um, last announcement uh, because they're trying to stamp it out. But we're in a bit of a messy middle Mm. between interest rates and inflation right now. And the housing market is also in that messy middle. So Mm. I think by the end of the year, I think that we do start to see a bit more activity in the fall. Uh, Seasonally, September to November are very busy periods. And I think that we're going to find a new normal.
2: Actually, Steve, one more question, because I'd be remiss to not ask. What about renters? What are they seeing right now?
6: Well, it's not good. Um, It's it's very painful in the rental market. I mean, I had uh, had an apartment listed for rent, and we had probably 13 offers in a span of five days, Um, and we rented for about 30% more than we rented it for in 2020, um, November of 2020, the fall. So that, that should provide a bit of perspective. It was a, it was a good location. It was, it was a nice, you know, one uh, bedroom plus an office condo. No parking, no locker, just in a good location. Um, and I think that we are seeing a return to the city in some degrees. Um, a lot of students, uh, a, lot of, a lot of medical workers, uh, a lot of people coming back uh, to Plant Roots in Toronto again with, uh, with the city reopening. So the rental market is not great, and that's kind of the new housing crisis. is rental accommodations while the, while the resale market takes, uh, takes time out.
1: Steve Jelinek, Toronto Real Estate Agent with Chestnut Park Real Estate. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Well, this is not good news for those of us who enjoy air travel, especially after a lengthy wait due to the COVID pandemic. A new report from a flight tracking website ranked Toronto's Pearson International Airport as the world's worst airport for delayed flights. On some days, the airport has seen more than half of its flight departures delayed. And this is happening in the middle of the busy summer travel season as well. While filling in for Libby, Marissa Lennox was joined on Tuesday by John Graddock, faculty lecturer at McGill University in Montreal, and a former executive with Air Canada, and Martin Firestone, president of Travel Secure, Inc.
4: It's a complete what I'll call domino effect that here in Canada, so many things have to be perfect or else everything falls apart. With the arrive can doc requirement, with the random testing now back in place, everything is backing up, and it is no surprise to me or my clients or travelers what's happening here in Canada.
8: John, what about you? Oh, I think it's, you know, you're, uh, Martin's right. I think there's been, a, you know, a, the system has to work. Every single element has got to be working properly, and uh, we've seen over the last three months that, it, you know, they still haven't got it right. And I think that uh, we're hopefully looking at a reduction in air travel in the fall to kind of help get this thing right.
2: There's so much to unpack here. But honestly, I mean, uh, first of all, how is it that every other airport in the world is getting it better than Pearson? Second, I also heard that Montreal was second in line for, for rankings in terms of worst airport for delays. But just, Martin, you know, given that this has been going on for so many months and... We're at peak travel season, and the finger keeps getting pointed at so many different people. Airlines are pointing at government, vice versa. Who is responsible? Who should be held accountable at this point?
4: I think they all, all share some of the uh, problems together. And you are right about the finger pointing. But at the end of the day, from even getting your passport, which we haven't even discussed, to then getting your tickets, and then to departing, and then to arriving, Everybody is responsible. I don't believe the traveler is rusty and responsible. That's about the only one who's not responsible. <laughs> but the bottom line is the the infrastructure is not keeping up with the demand. And that's it really put them forth.
2: Unless they leave their passport renewal until the day before travel, then the passenger, you're right, is not responsible. But John, I mean, you're a former executive with Air Canada. To what extent are the airlines responsible here?
8: Well, I've been, you know, kind of sitting in my soapbox for the last few months, kind of pointing a finger, you know, my finger at the airlines, uh, basically for lack of discipline in terms of really putting together a flight schedule that they've sold since March and April. Martin's done a pretty good job of selling stuff on Air Canada's operations. And there was really a flagrant, you know, issue with Air Canada not being able to operate that schedule.
2: Martin... I am curious to what extent the airlines are responsible. And I raise this because, you know, John mentioned it, but Air Canada have been, has been tr- uh, selling a flight schedule to passengers knowing full well they'll be canceling it down the road. So it's a little bit greedy, in my opinion.
4: In, in many ways, it is. But you know what I like in this, too? Just think of when there used to be a massive snowstorm on any one given morning. Everything backed up. The flights were delayed. The flights were canceled. Bags were lost because you got on other flights. It's almost as if every day since this started going back again has been a snowstorm. And that's the problem. When there is a problem like that, a weather delay, you don't really point fingers, okay? But this is happening every single day. The finger pointing had to start ultimately, and sure enough, it did. So this is just what is going on now, and it's not getting any better. That's the problem.
8: The pandemic has fundamentally changed the way in which we will, in fact, look at processing passengers at the airport and handling them on a the flight. And I think that that's where, uh, you know, people are asking me, when's it going to go back to normal? When are we going to go back to the way it was? And I said, never. We'll never go back. It's never going to be the same it was. And it's really going to be something like we saw happen after 9-11 with all of those security checks 20 years later. 21 years later, we're still doing it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, expect the same type of fundamental change in air travel as a result of what we've gone through over the last two years. Hopefully, the resources, the staffing levels will will increase uh, and get people properly trained. Hopefully, the the industry realizes that uh, minimum wage isn't going to make it anymore at the airport, and uh, we need to basically upscale the, uh, the compensation to make sure people want to work in this environment and, more importantly, stay, because that's the big issue today.
1: John Graddick, faculty lecturer at McGill University in Montreal and a former Air Canada executive, and Martin Firestone, president of Travel Secure, Inc. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back knockout call of the week.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown.
1: Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Scott phoned about a new federal requirement to reduce fertilizer use on Canadian farms.
6: I come from a a family of farmers, and we currently actively farm just outside of Acton. And I think that the reduction of fertilizer will really cripple how we do things, and, well, people will eventually starve. so And with farming being the backbone industry of any society, I think we need more support rather than taking away what we have.
2: Scott, do you worry such a policy could force you to close your farm?
6: Yes, it it would heavily affect it. As you've mentioned earlier, that um, it would reduce yield and then in turn reduce profits. And we're paying high prices for
4: fertilizer.
1: Ted in Bramalee also called in on this topic. Hi there. Yes.
4: uh, If they're serious about greenhouse gases, which they're not, they banned CFCs and replaced them with greenhouse gas. But if they're serious about greenhouse gases, they should have banned drive-through restaurants years ago.
0: <laughs> Look at Tim Hortons. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week.
1: There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week is Ron in Guelph who phoned about the federal conservative leadership race and the recent endorsement of Pierre Polyev by former conservative PM Stephen Harper.
4: Polyev can probably win enough conservatives and he's got enough votes. But can Polyev actually win the voters across the country in a general election? I don't think so. John Shray doesn't think so. you got to remember that Polyev and Harper were originally from the Reform Party. So... Stephen Harper is just supporting another Western guy um, in this thing. but um, And the Liberals are the only ones that are smiling in this whole thing because if Up, uh wins the Conservative leadership, um, they're going to go on the attack in the next election. And uh, no matter whether it's Justin or Christian Freeland, um, John Charest, as far as I'm concerned, is the only one that has a logical um, chance of... Um, of actually uh, winning the next general election for the Conservatives.
1: That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fight Back Libby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416 416- 416 Three six seven nine six three six. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back.
0: The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zev Paddy, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer Moses Neimer.